everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we have a fun show for you. We've got Amazon ready to come into your house. We've got Wink launching a new security bundle. And we've got something new to fear, the Reaper. Dun, dun, dun. We've also got some news about a new Google Assistant device, a crazy cheap speaker, and a voicemail from one of our listeners about working with Android. Our guest today is Phil Skipper, head of IoT at Vodafone, and our show is sponsored by SAP. And now, let's go to a message from another one of our sponsors, ADT. The Internet of Things podcast is brought to you by ADT. Home isn't just a place, it's a feeling. The feeling that you're safe to enjoy the things that matter most. ADT lets you take that feeling with you wherever you go. Whether you're in your house, your business, or online, ADT helps keep you safe and secure with security systems, home automation, alarms, and surveillance, so you can feel at home wherever you are. Learn more at ADT.com. Okay, Kevin. Let's get mm, started. Door locks and hubs and botnets, oh my. Exactly. We're talking about security because every good home automation company knows they've got to get into security. We've had, let's see, smart things partnering with ADT. We've had Ring. We've had Nest. And now we've got Amazon. Looks like it's getting into this space with a brand new security camera. What do you think of this? Actually, we should talk about what it is before we ask what you think. Yeah, so this is a smart move by Amazon. They're offering actually two new things, and they work together. One is their new webcam, which costs $119.99, and we'll talk about some add-ons that you can get or options you can add on for that. And then they also have Amazon Key, which is a way to uh, use a connected lock. They're selling you the lock, and that will allow you to let Amazon Prime deliveries right in your house. What do I think of that? I work from home, so I don't think I would need that. But I could see why people in the 37 metro areas that they're rolling this out in, some of them might like this. I probably would have the camera with the key, Amazon key is what they're calling this little bundle, just so I could see the people that come in and deliver. But Smartly, Amazon's also partnering with a bunch of their home services. So if you use Merry Maids or Rover or whatever, you can allow those people in your house as well. So it's not just for deliveries. And I I feel like this is a totally logical extension. You can only actually get the key integration with Amazon Prime. So the idea is, yes, Amazon's just going to be shipping stuff left and right to you. You'll put more stuff through Amazon Prime because why wouldn't you if you can just assure yourself that it never gets lost. This is also good for Amazon because you have to deal less with package theft and do you call it shrinkage or leakage when it's a package. I don't know. In the retail thing, it's shrinkage, which is people stealing stuff. Usually, Yeah, but, I call it theft. <laughs> all right, theft. So, okay, fine. So this is, I mean, it makes sense. If I were a security company that's hosting on AWS, and a lot of them are, I might kind of be like, yo, Amazon, what are you doing? This is our business. But that's kind of Amazon's cross to bear, especially with, you know, once yeah. about Whole Foods, all the retailers are like, oh, let's get out of this. 
Yeah. So just so folks understand, the locks are actually existing locks that you could already buy, but they are two of them. Yale and Quickset are working with Amazon's key in HomeKit. It costs $249.99 for the lock. And also that includes the Amazon Cloud Cam. So you're getting the whole bundle there for $250. And there's also free professional installation, which I think is very smart of Amazon to offer. Yeah, but it, okay, everyone, Stacy's PSA, install your own lock. It doesn't take long. I put a video up on this. It's site. not hard. It's not hard. And Kevin, you came up with this brilliant idea, which I think is probably accurate. My lock currently, because I have a quick set Z-Wave lock, I don't think that's going to work with this. It definitely is not, in my opinion. <laughs> the reason I say, I say definitely in my opinion. Definitely I, in your opinion. <laughs> All right. <laughs> definitely not. The reason I don't think it will work is because I looked at the quick set lock that is included with the cloud cam and the in-home key kit. And that model does come in two flavors, one with Z-Wave, one with Zigbee. I have the Z-Wave one also. The reason I don't think it's going to work is because the Amazon Echo Plus, which is a hub, does not support Z-Wave. So I presume Amazon is smartly using the Zigbee one so it can work with their hub. The hub's not required. You can have any other hub. That's fine. But I just leaning towards it not working. They have a new stamp works with Madam A on this as well. So we'll see if those locks get that stamp of approval. Ooh, and that's works with Madam A is a really interesting topic. So mm-hmm. I've talked to some developers and this stamp is relatively new. And it's something that Amazon has been pushing partners of theirs to work with them. On the Amazon Echo Show side, what it means is you're To get that sticker, you're going to have to show your video feeds on the show. And some partners are like, eh. And some of them are actually concerned that this is Amazon's effort to get more data from people. That could be true. Yes, it could be. And right now, some of them are like, eh, you know, do I really need a works with Madame A sticker? I have a skill that's fine. That's sufficient. This looks like a little bit more than I want to take on right now. So this is kind of an interesting, there's a behind the scenes thing happening with Amazon and its partners on Madame A. Well, and that I totally understand on the other side of the equation from a consumer standpoint, by showing this little works with Madam A, it gets rid of the whole conversation of which radios, Zigbee, Z-Wave, you don't need that on there anymore and confusing people and saying what works and what doesn't, kind of like the HomeKit logo. So I think it's rather clever from a consumer facing standpoint. Totally agree. All right. So this is Amazon's move into security. I wonder if we'll see them pop out with some sensors later on or partner with someone on sensors. But Wink, Wink has a new security bundle for $200. It is their smart security essentials pack. And Kevin, as a Wink owner, are you excited? This has two open closed sensors that doors, windows. It's got a siren and it has a camera-like looking motion detector that is not actually a camera. And all this is for $199. Take that nest in your $499, $500 security system. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting that they're bundling all this and also they're not requiring or adding on any monthly fees. This is definitely for somebody who wants security on their own. They want to monitor their own stuff through their apps and whatnot. So I think it's clever of Wink to do. I don't really need some of these things, but I might grab some of the, the door window sensors to give them a try. The nice thing is, I mean, Wink works with so many things, as does smart things, of course. I already have some of these products, just, you know, there's Z-Wave products that you can get anywhere. So I think it's a good for first-time buyers. And that seems to be a big 
key now. Everybody's aiming towards first time buyers, right? Yes. I think that's actually why the Amazon Echo Hub that we talked about a minute ago doesn't matter to many people that it doesn't work with Z-Wave because it's not meant for people who already have a lot of Z-Wave products. It's meant for people who are getting started in smart homes, as would this Wink Lookout be. I would argue that it matters for people who don't even know what Z-Wave is and will never know. (laughs) They'll never know. Good for them. So yes, I agree with you. I think there's some interesting pricing here. The other thing I would be interested with is other than security, I've actually tried to mess with some motion sensors and pulled motion sensors into my Wink system. And I always got a little frustrated because they could do open close, but a lot of these sensors have other readings that Wink would never pick up. So I'm curious how in adding these, if Wink is going to expand the capabilities for all of its sensors. Because there are definitely Um, some things that I would like to, like, I have existing window sensors that I would love to add to my Wink system and turn into a security system. Yeah, no, I I totally understand that. And I've seen what you're talking about, and it depends on the product. So I don't know if it's an all or nothing thing with Wink. I've actually gotten temperature and other things from motion sensors. It does Uh, depend on the product. It's basically if Wink has done... Wink and the device manufacturer have done the integration work. That's purely what it is. Exactly. Yep. So also on the security front, since people have been asking us about this, this is crazy. And I have been looking under rocks for all the bad things that this could have with it. This is a camera for $20 from a company called Wise Labs that's actually based in Seattle. And I am so suspicious. Kevin will tell you that I like was clicking through on the terms and conditions and the privacy policy. I was like, surely they're (laughs) selling your home feed to like a website somewhere just for entertainment purposes. But they don't appear to be or they at least aren't telling anyone about it. So the camera actually the hardware looks really good. What do you think, Kevin? I do. I'm surprised. And your skepticism is well-founded. I'll say that right up front. But I don't see any warning flags here. I see nice hardware. I see a 1080p camera, full HD, night vision, two-way audio. It's $20. It has an app that will, you know, alert you with motion and whatnot, depending on how you have it set up. It has a micro SD card slot if you want continuous recording on your own, which I think is great because you control that. But it will work with a cloud service that they're running on AWS. And for no extra fee, it will actually record 10 to 15 second clips whenever it sees motion and whatnot. My issue, or maybe why it's so inexpensive, it doesn't integrate with any hubs or anything. This is strictly, I've got a camera or cameras, and I use the app that comes with it to get my alerts and so on and so forth. So it's kind of limited in that respect. Maybe you can work with if this, then that or something, but I don't know. For $20, I may actually grab one or two or three of these. I don't know. Too late. I just bought one, Kevin. Dun, dun, dun. But it's on well, back did you buy order. The last? Okay. So you didn't buy the last one at least. Okay. Okay. Keeping on. So yes, we're going to buy it and review it and tell you what we think. And if I hate it, perhaps I'll even give it away on the show because why not? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about, oh, let's talk about noon. Guys, this is very exciting. This is a startup. I actually broke the news about this startup like a month ago. It's yeah, September. it's actually... Yeah, the CEO is Eric Charlton, who is the former head of business development at Nest. And there's a bunch of Nest folks there. And this is a lighting, a smart lighting startup that is actually really interesting looking. You guys know that I love lights. And what this company has done is they have created a light switch that you install. And it has preset, it has a couple things. One, it says, 
oh, hey, what are the lights in this room? So it detects the bulbs and what they're capable of once it's installed. And then it also has presets for various like relax and daylight and other like three settings. And then it automatically handles all of that for you. I think this is really interesting because as a person who's invested in lots of crazy lighting schemes, colored bulbs, LEDs of various hues and warm temperatures, whites, and so many light switches, I can tell you that most people do not want to futz with this. They just want to hit a button and have like a couple options that look good in their house. And that's what this is promising to do. Yeah, that's, I think, the big draw. You know, a lot of people don't want to go through the rigmarole, as you said, of setting up different scenes, where they're just like, I don't really know what's a good lighting setup, you know? So if these are, you know, professionally designed, you know, maybe they're going to just wow you. I don't know. But it's an interesting approach. It's actually a common one. So there's a startup actually in Austin, Texas that works on super high-end homes. It's called Ketra. And they actually make these crazy, awesome lights. I would love to have them in my house, but I am not that wealthy. And it's actually also something that like a Lutron, when if you get like a professionally installed, not the Cassetta, but the, the fancy Lutron, if you get that, they'll have a lighting designer come out and program this stuff for you. So basically, it's bringing that idea of having a professional lighting installer dude come into your your house and program your stuff, except this company's going to do it with a, is it $399 piece of hardware? Yes. And the package contains? Well, you get one room director switch, two extension switches, and three wall plates for $399.99. If you just want a room director switch, which is the main smarts, that's $199.99. So each room you're going to add will cost you 200 bucks, And then each extension switch for that room is $99.99. So it's not inexpensive by any means, but there's a definite convenience factor there. Oh, yeah. And again, if I look at all that I've spent, like if I look at my Hue bulbs, four of those at 60 bucks is, you know, 240 bucks. So I'm halfway there. And then I still had to buy something. I'd install a switch that kept it on for me, basically. So that's another 50 bucks. So now I'm at 300. And I'm still doing the work of programming it. So just putting it all into perspective. And the master switch you put in your room, and then the extension switch, they talk to it via some proprietary wireless protocol. So of course they do. And that basically you've got the master control. And then is it like a three way setup? Or is it like all around the house? You know, they kind of focus on room. So, you know, maybe you could have like one quote unquote master switch controlling two rooms if you want the same lighting in that room. But it seems to me like you're going to want one of these in every room, one one master switch. Yes. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of the master switch. Yeah. All right. And, And this doesn't include bulbs. People should be very clear. This doesn't include bulbs, but it works with regular bulbs. Yes. Your bulbs do not need to be smart. In fact, it's probably better if they aren't smart, just because Agreed. in my in my testing of these things, you don't need two smart things vying for control no. of your lights because they're going to fight. Smart thing plus smart thing equals dumb things because, yeah, they fight. It's terrible. Why can't they just get along? All right. Other quick, cool gadgets that we've seen. Linky, which is a touchscreen smart panel thing for Google Assistant. It reminds me exactly of the Nucleus, which was a touchscreen smart panel intercom system thing for Madame A. And it kind of reminds me of the Echo Show in that it is not very attractive. (laughs) 
I, I see why you're saying that. It does look like a mini Echo Show to me because it's a five-inch touchscreen, so it's small, and then it's got the speaker grill along the bottom. It almost looks like a very small iMac to me because it's that, that black and silver look to it. So you're right. It works with Google Assistant. It has a far-field microphone array, Wi-Fi, Zigbee, and Bluetooth wireless built in. And yeah, I mean, it's only interesting to me because it's the first Google Assistant item with a touchscreen. Right. Except it's, for my phone. It's unique. Well, except for your phone. Well, I've said that for long. We're carrying all these things right around in our house, quite honestly, but in our pockets, but that's okay. And it comes with an app, so you can still integrate and all that. It's $150. It's on Indiegogo. We should be very clear about that. It's a project on Indiegogo. Early bird special starts at $99. The full retail for one of these is going to be $150. And the idea is that you might put one and stand it on your living room coffee table, or you might put it on your nightstand, or you might mount it to a wall around your house because of the intercom system. So there, in fact, are two versions. There's a desktop version that stands up and there's an in-wall version. So you have to pick and choose and plan ahead on this. But it's only at 13% of its $30,000 flexible goal. So I say flexible because the campaign will get all the funds raised, even if it doesn't reach its goal. There's a month left. So you want to think carefully before you back this because even if they don't deliver the product, they're getting the money. Your money will go up in smoke. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yay. All right. Let's talk. <laughs> Such enthusiasm from Stacy. I'm like, sorry, sorry, you guys. I just, I'm not excited by this, but I am excited by Nude. So there we go. We all have our things. Let's talk about security because by golly, there's a <laughs> lot of news here. Let's talk about the Reaper. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Forget the song. You should fear this Reaper, I think. It's bigger than Mirai. It is a botnet. It is infecting everything. Maybe not everything, but it's... It's not good. So this, it's got over 2 million IP webcams, so IP cameras, and digital video recorders in the past month, according to Checkpoint. So it is growing faster than Mirai. And the concern is that these devices have enough computing power, they have enough access to bandwidth, that they could create a massive DDoS attack. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the concern with Mirai, This is very similar, only it's a little more advanced because this thing can really, instead of like changing passwords and having control, this can install additional software on these infected devices. And we don't know what that software can do, right? Depends on what the botnet controller wants it to do. This is very concerning, perhaps more concerning than Mariah, in my opinion. Yes, because you could actually reboot and then patch and then Mariah was gone and couldn't attack you again. But here, because it can actually install things that will run on that device. It'd be persistent. Right. Thank you. That's the word. I was like, they'll stay there even after it's off. Mm -hmm. So this is concerning. And I would say it's concerning for two reasons. One, because it could unleash a massive amount of bandwidth at a target, but two, because this is another thing that's going to tar and feather IoT. And these devices are old school devices. These are not the yep. modern devices that we talk about. So some of them, you know, we've got hard coded passwords. We've got, you know, either not going to be updated over the air or they're just out of service, basically. These devices could be yeah. like 10 years old. So I think the more current modern companies are learning from this, but I think that we still haven't actually encountered a true IoT attack yet that actually takes advantage of the Internet of Things. I feel like this attack, yes, it targets 
computing devices that are connected that are not actually computers, but it is still very much in line with the old models of attacking computer systems. And I think we're going to start to see new attacks that are going to be aimed at true IoT devices, so sensors that lie to each other or other types of the physical world attacks that we see against Bluetooth, like these subwoofer-like sound waves that can disrupt your accelerometer. All of that's going to be happening, and we're not even really talking about those very much yet. Fear the Reaper! The only thing I would add is... I think we're in a better place now because of what you just said. Those other devices are very old, not going to be patched. And yes, we still have some issues with IoT device makers not offering security patches as quick as they could or they should. But most of these are updatable pretty easily. So we've got that on our side. It's just going to come down to how quickly do these device makers react. Yes. Okay. So... There's that. And then there's a possible solution on the horizon. So this is really interesting. ARM, I am actually here at ARM TechCon this week. I gave a speech all about IoT and talked about some of the things we always talk about on this show. So most of you guys will be like, oh, I remember that. But they introduced something called the PSA, and that stands for Platform Security Architecture. And so this is really interesting because ARM has gathered up a bunch of big names in the industry and is basically saying, we're going to set certain things in place on the hardware. And then you guys, here is a framework for software development that will work with our hardware. And That I think is going to be key because you can't, one of the issues we have right now is companies on the hardware side sell chips with like secure modules and all this cool stuff in it. But a lot of the companies don't actually turn it on or know if they're working with it or correctly or not. So this framework will address things like that and will kind of link security together there. Yeah. The the smartest thing here is that ARM is kind of using an open source firmware called Trusted Firmware M, and that's going to support this PSA spec. So by doing that, instead of making it something proprietary and, and so on, A, it will allow people to contribute updates to that code to theoretically make it better, and B, it'll be easily usable by more companies. And that's what ARM wants. I mean, if they're expected to ship 200 billion chips by, I think it was 2021, and I mean, 200 billion chips running in all kinds of computing devices, but a lot of obviously smartphones and so on, but tons and tons of little IoT devices. So you're addressing a wide base of the product market, and you're making it easier to do so in a secure way. Which is awesome. So Mm. we are excited by ARM's PSA. I hope this is a good step forward. And I guess I feel like we've talked about a lot of stuff. Kevin, do we have anything else we want to share? Do we want to take that listener voicemail? I do want to take a listener question, Kevin. And for those of you guys who may not be aware of it, we have the Internet of Things hotline where Kevin and I will endeavor to solve your toughest, or better yet, easiest IoT problems. And you can call us at 512 512- Six two three seven four two four, and now we have our voicemail from Derek. Hey, Stacey and Kevin, this is Derek from Tuscaloosa. You have permission to use this in your show if you'd like. I am a HomeKit user. I love HomeKit, but I've been looking at that new Google Pixel, and I was wondering: is there any phone or any other operating system? that integrates home automation into the actual ecosystem of the phone besides HomeKit? Like, is the Google Assistant one, or will I have to have a bunch of different apps? If you have an answer to this, please let me know. 
Love the show. Love you guys. Appreciate all that you do for us. Oh, Derek, we love this question. One, because it kind of fits into the easy section, I think. Although, as always with our questions, we'll give you the caveat of your mileage may vary based on the devices you have and your comfort with technology, which is basically a huge disclaimer. It's what I was expecting to see when I saw that $20 camera, but didn't see. So, all right, there is a lot of software out there that won't do exactly what Home for iOS does. So if you want it to be persistently available on the home screen, or what is that little tray that pops up on your iOS? What is that called? Command center? Is that okay? Yeah, if you want it in the command center mm. or something like that, that's, I've got nothing for you. But, but, uh, but it's sort of, it's hard to answer the question without knowing, you know, all the details of the system, the hub, and so on and so forth. But I use Wink on my phones, Derek, both iOS and Android. And that is my central repository for controlling everything, seeing the sensors and so on. It's certainly not as clean as home, which I also have installed, although I don't have a lot of HomeKit devices. One thing that's lacking, for example, there's no rooms like home has. Like home, I can see what sensors are doing in different rooms and so on. So it's very clean and, and I like that. However, if you have a smart things hub, which will work with either iOS or with Android, they do have room support, and I find the interface cleaner than Wink. It's closer to what Home offers. Again, if you don't have a SmartThings hub, it's that's obviously not going to help you. It's not like you can use it with other hubs. But Stacey, have you seen anything, any third-party type things that just suck everything in like this? So there are some, and there are limitations. So I've mentioned one before called You Know Me. I don't know. I don't think that it has kind of the room support that you would be looking for, the ability to control it from an app. There is, however, a company, it used to be called Alfred Smart Home. It's a company called Gideon Smart Home. So you can download this app on Android and it has the room capabilities. You can create scenarios. You can control a huge variety of devices, but in some cases you're going to have to have the hub. So like it controls a bunch of Insteon devices, but for that to work, you're going to have to have the Insteon hub. It controls right. Wemo devices. For that to work, you don't have to have a hub. So it's got Nest, it's got Philips Hue, it's got some NetAtmo gear, but not all of the NetAtmo gear. It's got Sonos. It will control SmartThings stuff. TP-Link gear. It actually controls some of the Wink stuff through the Wink hub. So it's pretty promising. I tried it last probably about a year ago and it worked. The interface was different than what it looks like now, but I kind of expect that because it was newer and a little clunky, but it did do the controlling. There was a little latency, but I would also ask you, why do you want to do this from an app? In, I'm not trying to be a jerk, mm. but I really try very hard to not pick up my phone to control my house. And I do that thanks to the Amazon Echo or the Google Home. And that mm -hmm. is, I feel like I use an app, you know, maybe one out of every 20 times that I'm controlling a device. And I, I totally, I get your point there. I do. In defense of maybe why Derek might want to do this, when I look at the Home app, I get information. It's not just about control. Maybe I want to see what the temperature is upstairs without having to speak or walk upstairs or so on and so forth. It's just right there. Like I'm looking at the home app, it's occupancy detected, you know, in the dining room. Well, that's obviously my dog who probably shouldn't be on the dining room table. Um, I can see the heat down there, the heat up here, the temperature and so on. It's like, I sort of get that. It's the getting of information as well as control. Got it. Okay. Well, now I understand. Mm -hmm. And now I say Gideon will offer you some <laughs> of that information. Gotcha. Gotcha. And SmartThings and, and, definitely does. Yes. On a semi-related note, what I think 
Andy Rubin's Essential is promising is something like this when the Essential Home products come out, because he just wants to apparently make it all seamless and all in one repository or one app and so on. I haven't heard anything about that. I do have an Essential phone being delivered today. I'm going to see if they have any smart home software included in that as well, but that's something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, I'm excited about, I know the essential phone was a bit of a bust, but I am excited about the smart home efforts and hope those are still going on. It's less of a bust now that they dropped the price $200. That's why I bought one. (laughs) Go, Kevin. Always on the prowl for a discount. All right. I feel like that was a really good show and we should pause here, take a break, and then come back with our guest, Phil Skipper, who is the head of IoT at Vodafone. And we are going to be talking about NBIoT, the possible convergence of other cellular low power wide area networks, and some fun things that are happening with this expanded connectivity. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone, we are breaking into the Internet of Things podcast with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is SAP, and I have Gil Perez, who is SVP of IoT and Digital Supply Chain. We are talking about SAP Leonardo Live, which is a big event that you are having November 2nd through 3rd in Chicago. Can you tell me what this is? Leonardo Live is SAP brand name for our ongoing innovation. And this is a global event, which we're going to have people coming from all over the world to see how SAP's technologies come together to really create that system of innovation, whether it's going to be blockchain, machine learning, of course, IoT and other things coming together with SAP customers, SAP partners, and of course, SAP themselves showcasing all these amazing technologies. Okay, so I could see some real world things, which is really exciting. What are you most excited about? Personally, I'm working on two really interesting areas. One of them is connected vehicles. And in that space, we're really seeing the continued connectivity of all the cars in the telcos, where they are offering what we call the OBD dongles. So making any existing cars that is on the road today connected with an OBD dongle. So we're going to have a great company called Mojio presenting how they're working with SAP and really offering today's SyncUp, which is the T-Mobile offering, which is powered by SAP connected vehicles. So that's going to be a really exciting session. Another area is, of course, blockchain. Blockchain is another amazing and new technology that is evolving quite quickly. Everybody knows them in the context of Bitcoin, but in the enterprise, it's going to be used in other ways, specifically in the context of track and trace and accountability and ensuring that drugs which are being distributed are authentic. We've been working with Merck as an example and Amerisource. And we're showcasing those technologies, innovations, really with SAP technology being used in the today out there in the field and being piloted. There's going to be a lot of interesting stories with multiple customers. This sounds great. So there are a lot of shows right now focused on IoT. What makes Leonardo Live different? Leonardo Live is going to be full with customers that actually have hands-on experience with all these technologies. So I really urge anybody who is interested in these kind of technologies from blockchain, machine learning, IoT, to come and visit us at Leonardo Live because you're going to be able to interact with those customers, partners in real time. All right. This is coming up on November 2nd through 3rd in Chicago. So where can we find out more about Leonardo Live? You can find all the information on www.sap.com slash Leonardo Live NA. 
Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Phil Skipper, who is head of business development for Vodafone's IoT efforts. Hi, Phil. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. So we've got you on the show to talk about a couple things. One, it's to give us that European perspective we so often lack on this show. And two, it's to talk about everyone's favorite topic, low-power wide area networks. We are all excited about low-power wide-area networks here, and it's probably worth a few seconds to explain, gosh, what the heck are these and why do they matter for the Internet of Things? Well, we're pretty excited about um, low-power wide-area networks as well. And for us, this technology opens up a a sector that's never been addressed before because the need of low-power and high penetration, particularly in buildings, has not been reached with traditional mobile. LPWA actually enables us to deal with the hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of water and electricity and gas meters are out there that have really been waiting to be connected for a number of years and can then really become part of the smart metering revolution that we see. Okay. And now you guys, for your particular network, have chosen NBIOT. Why did you guys choose that over something like CAT-M? We spent a long time looking at what was the best option for a low-power offering. We came to the conclusion that NBIOT was good it runs in the license spectrum and as a mobile operator that's important to us but more importantly it's got very good in-building penetration and very low battery life we chose mbiot because it was a better fit for our infrastructure and what we actually want to do in terms of our enterprise channel strategy to utilities particularly but i think what you're seeing in the us is catem is coming on as well and in china it's a big market for mbiot so We chose MBIOT, but as we go forwards, I think we're going to see other technologies converge, especially in the license space. Okay. And MBIOT has like a very low data rate, which I'm wondering if America picked CAT-M because we're like gluttons for bandwidth. But what about things like when we talk about over-the-air updates and those sorts of needs, do we need something fatter in terms of the pipeline? I think in, in the US, the, the issues around the closure of 2G networks influenced the push towards CATM. I think if you look in other countries, yep, the bandwidth is fairly narrow. But if you look at what these devices are used for, you don't actually need to get a lot of information from it at any one particular moment in time. So they're traditionally used for things like broken glass detection, environmental monitoring, and so on. And the thing that we like about MBIOT is bi-directional, so you can get as much up as you can get down, which enables us to do over-the-air updates. And that's going to be particularly interesting as you start to deploy the more advanced securities over these types of technologies where you're constantly going to need to refresh the device. Indeed. Okay, so let's talk about this idea of convergence, because I am very curious what you mean when you mentioned that you thought CAT-M and NBIOT may end up converging into some sort of single standard? Are we talking about like a het net kind of thing? I think it's a bit of a way yet to decide how that's going to work. But I think if you look at what customers demand, which is what really drives us all, they're going to want some form of interoperable roaming or something like that between networks. Now, if I'm introducing a CAT-M device in the US, I'd really like that to work everywhere, and the same with MBIOT. And since both of these run in the license spectrum and they both run on the LTE backbone, 
then I think that there's a strong case which says over time, I think you may well see these things becoming similar. There will clearly still be two things. There will still be NBIOT and there will still be CATM, but I think you'll see them become more interoperable. Okay, let's talk about some of your connected device use cases that are using either NBIOT or, I don't know, something even fancier. In terms of use cases for IoT devices, they're just going to explode and continue exploding over the next few years. And that's exploding in terms of volume, I hasten to add. We do all from, you know, connected car and internet in the car and media services right the way through tiny devices that you might use for detecting rat traps or a range of tiny event-driven devices like that. So use cases are very broad. I think the interesting ones is not so much the use case, but how the product is then monetized. And I think that's the other area that we're seeing many more uses for it, but equally many more ways of monetizing the asset and the connectivity. And I think that's really the interesting bit low-power wide area technology brings. Well, let's talk about the economics of low-power wide area, because I saw an article probably a few months ago talking about the module costs, and I believe it was someone from Vodafone that was actually saying the module costs are not low enough yet. So I'm very curious, when does it become economically viable to actually put this in more places? Well, it is now. So I think if you look at some of the, the key applications, and if you look at how much money is generated through, say, a gas meter, that can support the cost of a traditional modem. The problem is you don't have the power to do it. So all of a sudden, you can fit an MBIOT device onto something which previously hasn't actually been able to power it properly. So I think the costs are there right now. I think when you start looking at lots of these new applications, broken glass detection and some of the smaller tracking devices, they're going to be much smaller, they need to be much cheaper. I, I think that's going to come with volume. So I think what you've got now is much more hearing in terms of how much the hardware costs and on cost is that in terms of the application value. And I think what you're going to see is going to pare down smaller and smaller and smaller as lower value applications come to market. Now, that then brings you on to the second question, which says, you know, how is it actually monetized? And I think that's the point where you say, well, actually, if the value of the device is relatively low, the value is actually created when that device is activated. And I think that's some of the event-driven monetization that you're going to see come out of MBIOT. What do you mean by event-driven? Does that, I mean, because what we're seeing today is mostly subscription-based because these things have I think that's because that's how consumers and even businesses are used to paying for their data plans. Yes, and that's traditionally how the market has sold data. But if you take, for instance, and we like the example of, of broken glass, the sensor for that is actually relatively low cost, and the chances of windows being broken are fairly frequent. However, they are very, very expensive to replace. And I think when you look at things like MBIOT, what we look for is this asymptotic change in value from where something goes from being very cheap to something which has a high cost. So if I just give an example of that event, if a pane of glass is, is broken, then it's going to cost you a few hundred pounds to have that pane of glass replaced. It's at that point that you can actually monetize the device. So we're seeing more models where the hardware is fitted for free, where it's fitted is the initial value. So you've then got a customer list of connected windows that you can then sell to a glazier. And then actually you might get a, a referral payment when that glazier goes and replaces the glass. So you're no longer trying to monetize hardware and a low connectivity cost. 
you're actually monetizing the event or the outcome that the customer wants, which is quick replacement of his window. Oh, okay. That's kind of a cool idea. So in that case, the payment comes to you from the glassmaker. They pay only when it's like, oh, I'm broken. Let me tell somebody. And that is like the only data rate we expect. Exactly. So we keep, you know, of course, we keep monitoring it to see if the battery's okay and all the rest of it. But it's at that point where the value suddenly goes from very low to very high. And that's when there's sufficient margin for everyone to be able to provide a really good service and get paid for it. In the same way that in our current business day, we offer stolen vehicle recovery. We don't offer stolen vehicle tracking. So if you get your car stolen, knowing it's been stolen is of no use. Having it returned to you is incredibly valuable. And I think it's where you convert that from a technology input to a business output. That's where value is to be had. Okay. Now, so in this idea, because I totally see where you're going, and that makes a lot more sense than me like paying a monthly fee for a glass break sensor, because once it's broken, I'm like, oh, that was my security. Okay, here we go. Do you think consumers are going to start ending up with things that they're unaware that they're connected? Yeah. And of course, in all of these things, privacy and security are actually key. And that's something we hold very dear to the way we operate all of our business in, in Vodafone. But if you're looking at something where you're given the option. So, for instance, asking your shopkeeper whether he wants one of these yes or no, and this is the service that he provides, that becomes a much easier process to manage. I think it will be a lot harder if these things are covert in products that you buy. And we've already seen that with people with smart televisions and so on, where data has been sent back from the television. So I think if you're clear and you're honest, and you're really consequent with the data and your customer's privacy, everyone benefits. Okay, yeah, I would not disagree with that. I just feel like there's not always a lot of communication. And you touched on security, which is something I think licensed bands generally have a little bit more of in this field. So talk to me about how you guys are both securing the connectivity in the network, but also the customer data on the back end. Like what role do you play in helping everything be a little more secure? Yeah. And this was again, one of the reasons for us going for licensed technology. So as a big operator, we've got a large volume of customers and enterprise customers and IoT customers and so on that we have to secure them all. So the nice thing is, is that when we add something like MBIOT to our portfolio, it falls under the same umbrella of security because we have to do it in our core business. And all of a sudden, we can deploy exactly the same types of skills and processes on these other types of technologies. So we get the economy of scale in security. And I think that's really, really important because security is something you have to invest in all the time. So we then take that umbrella and we split it into a number of parts. So the first one is how do you secure the device? So how do you make the device only available to certain people? How do you make sure that the SIM card can't be taken out and used for something else? And we do that by using embedded SIMs and our own global SIM that only works on our network across our platform. We then secure the pipe, which is the connectivity piece. And we've got a variety of different techniques that we use, of course, to secure that pipe encryption and so on. And then it goes off up to our global platform. And one of the key differences is we own, operate, and maintain our platform. So it's designed and developed by Vodafone. And we've actually linked that to the way that the SIM operates into the architecture that we have between our global SIM and our global platform. And we have created a, what 
we term a bit of a walled garden, where only things that we want are in the garden, everything else is outside. So rather than having a large, complicated system that you're trying to close down, we have a small system that we then expand. And that gives us a lot more control over the conditions in which that system works and how people get in and how people can get out. Then, of course, you move into our cloud and hosting business. And then finally, into our enterprise business, which is where we actually secure the data when it's used further and distributed further around the enterprise. So if I'm buying a Vodafone connectivity, it sounds like I have to keep everything in your world. So if I build something, if I build my IoT platform on AWS, or if I want to use a different cloud platform provider, I can't? No, you can. And we already pre-integrate our connectivity platform with a range of other suppliers, including AWS. So we're open, but of course, if you want the best security, you need to put it all in one person's hand. But we're open to work with multiple people in the ecosystem. IoT is an ecosystem play. It's just making sure you work with people that have the same view on topics like security and privacy. Got it. Okay. Let's go back to this window maker, because I feel like there are a lot of really technically savvy folks like the AWS guys, like you guys, y'all really know what you're doing in the IT world, right? Now we bring in this window maker who's like, hey, I want to add this module and create this other line of business, which sounds awesome. But then let's say maybe it's the processor inside the sensor that's broken, that gets hacked. So there's an element inside the window sensor that gets hacked or is vulnerable. You guys might see this long before the window maker who probably isn't thinking about that sort of area. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they probably aren't. So what is the role as technology expands into more places with people who are maybe not as technically savvy for a company like Vodafone? That really brings us on to the starting area of, of sort of managed IoT connectivity, which is what we offer today. So it's not you know a guy that's fitting windows Looking after remote sensors is not his core business, but it is ours. So what we do in terms of security is we'll monitor that device. And if we see behaviors that we don't expect, if we see usage that we shouldn't see, we're then able to shut that device down and then tell him. So all he wants to know is whether he's got information that he can use or not. He doesn't necessarily care or be able to cope with dealing with that complexity. And that's what we do. So As a managed IoT provider, we deal with all of those issues around the network so we can just provide him with the input to the business process that he wants to run. And that's something we do on our existing IoT business. It's something we do in MBIoT and low power as well. Are customers buying into that? It feels like a lot of people are like, hey, the most secure thing would be to build it ourselves. And then there was this evolution where they were like, oh, that was a dumb idea. Let's not build it ourselves. Let's go to somebody else who's built these platforms because they know what they're doing. But now it feels like they still want to monitor and have that data. So is this just a continual evolution back to the experts? Or do you think there's, I don't know, it feels like it's not, not many people are doing it that way. Yeah. And I think it really depends on who you're talking about. So the large multinationals that adopt IoT early tend to have a really strong technical team and they want to manage those connections directly. So with our platform, they can actually look into their portfolio and see everything that is actually happening. If you take a company that may not have the same skills, for instance, people that might be making connected clothing, for instance, these guys do not have the backhaul process to deal with the data coming back into their business. 
So as an example, if you're making, a, for instance, a skiing jacket with an alarm system in it, so if there's an avalanche alarm, it triggers it, the company that makes the jacket won't be able to have service centres around the world. We have those service centres, so we can respond to those alarms. So it really depends on who you are and what business process you're running as to how much of a managed service you buy. And I think as you move into the smaller businesses and those businesses which are much more production orientated, there is quite a large market for these IoT managed services. All right. And you guys recently surveyed a lot of people as part of your IoT barometer. Broadly, what was most interesting to you? I know that, you know, more people are deploying IoT solutions. They're doing it for a variety of reasons. But what surprised you? I think there were a couple of things. So one, the number of organizations which are actually increasing the scale of their IoT deployments right now. So that's really a good indication that people have seen the benefits and actually investing more in digitizing their business to the IoT. So that was one. The second one was the changes in the perception around security, where we first had an example of who said security is a real problem. People are now saying security is actually still a problem, but we understand how to resolve it. And I think that was the bit where, in this barometer, they're actually saying, we know about security and what we're prepared to do is to work with specialists. We're prepared to work with people that understand the risks that we run. So it's less of a barrier to entry into IoT. So they were the two things for me. Really, how customers are increasing the volume and secondly, this changing attitude towards how to become secure. All right. We've done this whole conversation, but we haven't actually talked about the threat of unlicensed or the role of unlicensed low power wide area networks. And I've got to ask you, because I hear a lot of companies are deploying like LoRa networks, especially inside their own plants and kind of creating this private low power win. So what is your thought about LoRa? There's Sigfox. There's so many. Yeah. And I think that's really the split we're seeing between unlicensed wide area networks and these licensed networks like MDIOT and CATM. And I think there's space for them to, to coexist. And you're already seeing that with some of the deployments in factories and in sites, which tend to be private. And of course, over the top of that, you can overlay 2G or MDIOT. So there's a range of different options out there. So I think my view is that these will coexist in the same way that factory automation systems and network connectivity in in buildings has coexisted with mobile. Okay. Now, carriers have been working now for the last, gosh, I want to say almost a decade. I started reporting about, you know, like the carrier's Wi-Fi efforts. And there are definitely strategies now, especially with 5G coming, to kind of blend licensed and unlicensed together in kind of these seamless well, seamless to the end consumer packages. So is that what you see happening with some of these unlicensed low power WANs? Yeah, I think, again, we're at an early stage as to sort of how these things come up. But I think if you look at remote sites or private sites, they may use an unlicensed technology. If you look at other companies, they may use a mixture of licensed and unlicensed. I think it really depends on the application. And it's just more choice. And I think what you'll come down to is not necessarily the technology that's chosen, but the quality of the service that you get, where you can get it, and the level of security that comes with the offering that you've chosen. So I think it's going to be much more a service-based differentiation than it will be around technology. I think that sums up the IoT very well. It's service. It's your workloads that determine what the technology is that you're going to use. All right, Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. 
It's absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. That's all for this week's Internet of Things podcast. Remember, if you want more IoT news, please sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.